1: This is a dream come true for me, to be able to spend this time with all of you and with the amazing Pam Greer. So to paraphrase my absolute favorite movie tagline of all time, wham, bam, here comes Pam Greer.
2: Ben Mankiewicz here. Got another bonus episode for you. Today I want to bring you more of my conversation with Jacqueline Stewart, the director of the Academy Museum and one of the hosts here at Turner Classic Movies. Jacqueline is a bona fide film professor, University of Chicago, and a longtime fan of Pam Greer. Enjoy. You're one of the five smartest people I've ever met.
1: Oh, Ben.
2: No. <laughs> so at the TCM Film Festival, you don't get to see one of the five smartest people you've ever met. Uh, geek out like a teenager. But that's sort of what happened a- in the moments before you met Pam Grier for the first time.
1: Oh, man. Yes. Uh, you know... I was slated to do a Q&A with her during the festival, and in the weeks before, I was really <laughs> nervous, like, how am I going to hold it together? And when Oprah talks about the first time she was going to interview Diana Ross, her hero, that she made herself, like, cry all night long the night before just to get it all out. So I just kept kind of looking at a bunch of images, and, okay, Pam's going to be there <laughs> in the flesh. No, I was really freaking out, no question. But then she is such a warm person, and she is accustomed to people freaking out. And when she came in the room, every room I saw her enter during the festival, people are going crazy. And um, certainly at the screening of coffee that, uh, that we hosted, every phone was up to take video, and people were just yelling out to her the entire time. We are thrilled to see you. Are you? Oh, my God. Well, you're going to see a whole lot more of me later in a minute. Yes, we are. I'm just, I said, is there anyone under 13 in this audience? (laughs) She understands what her legacy is, no question. I think she really does understand the importance of her acting, of her larger kind of, like, iconography. Like, she gets all that. And from what I could tell, she's really proud of it. Again, shameless. She's shameless, and so there was a way in which she was also kind of authorizing everybody around her to be shameless, too. Like, we can talk about anything. Nothing's off limits, and uh, just fascinating person to spend time with.
2: Do you remember what it was like being exposed to Pam Greer?
1: Sure. I guess I would think of her in the way that people talk about pinup girls in the 40s. That's what she was in the Black community in the 1970s. I mean, it seemed like her—pictures of her were everywhere. (laughs) People couldn't help but talk about just how incredibly gorgeous she is. And then there was this pride that people had in the fact that she was in movies where she was kicking ass. I mean, that meant a lot to people in the Black community. Still does. People still think about her as such a pioneer in that way. So what I remember is— of knowing that there was this gorgeous black woman whose image was ubiquitous and really beloved and beloved for this kind of edgy reason. But probably it wasn't until I was in college that I watched any of her films when I really started to study black film history and recognize that the period of the 1970s was absolutely critical to that story. How
2: did your opinions about Pam and what she represented change when you started seeing the movies and you didn't just see them as a fan, you were you were seeing the movies with a critical
1: eye. There are all kinds of, like, features of her stardom and her films that are still, to me, like, perplexing and wonderfully contradictory. So I knew that she was someone that the Black community, and I'm using that in, in admittedly, too broad a way, really felt that she was an important figure and a gorgeous figure. But then as I started to study the historical context, it broke down what the black community means because there were some people in the black community who had real issue with these so-called black exploitation films. So the idea that you could solve these centuries-long problems of, uh, of racism and inequity <laughs> through these fantasies of revenge, I mean, a lot of black activists felt that that was a deeply problematic message for young black people to see. People were arguing that there was a glorification of drugs in these films, that they were amplifying stereotypes that were really damaging. And I guess I kind of knew that there could be those critiques, but kind of reading through the literature and the debates as I delve more deeply into these questions, I guess I was really struck by the fact that Pam Greer and the roles that she played occupied a really important space in those debates because it was one thing for Black male figures to be these whatever, superhero shaft, superfly, and so on. For a woman to take that up was not only pressing on these racial questions, but it was pressing questions of gender and sexuality that then became deeply, deeply fascinating to me. My name's Coffee.
2: Coffee, black and stacked and packed with fury with both barrels zeroed in on the mob's top killers
0: this is the end of your rotten life you don't push her
2: coffee how do you uh, reconcile the obvious draw that you and others have to the films with those issues or and do they need to be reconciled
1: i don't think they can be reconciled i think both of them coexist Of course, you can have your opinion, (laughs) you can choose to be offended, you can choose to be a champion and ignore these critiques, but I think what's so important, the reason why her work continues to resonate is precisely because these things can't be reconciled. So the fact that she really wears her sexuality uh, in this outward way, oh my gosh, like if I had ever had the opportunity to talk about Pam Greer to my grandmothers, (laughs) which I did not I'm sure the way that they thought about her would have been very different from the way that my mom, you know, and this generation of black folks who were becoming more militant and consciousness-raising that was happening for that generation in the 1970s would have been very, very different.
2: How so? How would your grandmothers have responded in a way that your, your mom did not?
1: Yeah. So you have this nexus of the black liberation movement and the women's movement happening in the 1960s and 70s. Black women were really struggling with this. The feminist movement was uh, sort of white women dominated, and Black women were trying to figure out how to articulate their space in that movement, how to tie it to, again, a centuries-long Black freedom struggle that had always involved women, Black women centrally. So white women were kind of asking Black women, you know, what's your priority? Is it Black liberation or women's liberation? We should all be united against men. And Black women were saying, wait a minute, we don't have one struggle. We have multiple struggles, and we have a class struggle, too. So I think from my mother's generation, there was more active questioning of women's roles and an understanding of the ways in which the expression and the suppression of Black women's sexuality was part of the problem. So Pam Greer is out there. Showing it all, right? Shamelessly, like the word "shameless" is what I would use with Pam Greer, but in a, but in a, like a in a, a positive, positive notion, ap- right, no right. shame, like without shame, right? As opposed to the ways that for my grandmothers, the visceral histories of of sexual violence against Black women. I guess what I think about is how my grandmothers always made sure, like when we went to church, you wear a dress, you have to have a slip on underneath, so no one could see through your clothes, right? And you couldn't wear red nail polish, and you couldn't have your hair down, it had to be in braids. This was always, they were trying to protect us from being abused by men, but also even just the prospect of being seen as a loose woman, that there'd be fulfilling stereotypes. And Pam Greer, as a kind of exemplar of the women's movement and black women's consciousness raising at that time in particular, is saying, I am not going to be censored in that way, and I want to use my sexuality in a way that can be liberatory. And that was very powerful.
2: So it sounds to me like no matter the issues which you give total legitimacy to and understanding of, Pam comes out ahead.
1: I would say so because she's breaking ground. So it's never going to be easy or simple to insert yourself into, like, a river of misrepresentation and oppression. And that's what she did. She stepped in there. I mean, it's not unlike the way we talk about Hattie McDaniel, really. Her taking that role in Gone with the Wind, it's just like some people were mortified and thought she was setting the race back. In addition to all of the issues that come up around the Mammy character in that film and other films that she played, she was insisting, like, I'm going to show up on screen. This is a job. This is an industry. I have a right to be an artist, and I think that Pam Greer in some ways is asserting many of the same things, and even if people have issues with the representations and rightly point out that they perpetuate certain ideas, I hate to think of what our lives would be like if those performances did not exist. I don't know how I did it. It seems like I'm in a dream, and I'm still in this dream, Howard, and it wouldn't take much for me to kill you now.
2: What was happening in the in the late '60s and early '70s that set the stage for black exploitation films?
1: Well, the film industry was kind of in trouble. Television was uh, proving to be a really difficult competitor, and so we see the film industry trying a whole bunch of things to keep people in the theaters: widescreen and, you know, Technicolor and. All kinds of stunts in theaters, giving out dishes and lotteries, all kinds of things to make
2: dishes? the movies. Sure, <laughs> dishes. The sets I didn't, of dishes. I didn't, I didn't know you could get dinner all kinds where. of prizes yeah.
1: uh, and raffles and so forth. At the same time, this is a moment where white flight from urban centers to the suburbs had really changed the demographics of the core areas of you know most cities in this country, and so these massive movie palaces that have been built in, you know, every major city. They were starting to decay. And one reason they were allowed to decay is because that white audience wasn't the core audience anymore. Black audiences were going to many of these theaters. So it was a real business opportunity for the industry to think about how to exploit a Black audience. And that term exploit, you know, sounds negative, but, you know, it's like a, a business concept of exploiting a market. And that's where the, like, exploitation... Part of black exploitation comes from. These are films that are exploiting a black market in the same way that there were teen exploitation films. Yeah, and right. then, you, you know, you kind of layer onto that. You could fe- say the
2: Marvel movies are teen exploitation well, films, right? You could say that, I mean, yeah,
1: absolutely. Right. I guess the other piece that's different from the Marvel films is the low budget nests. Yeah. <laughs> so Roger Corman, Jack Hill, like these guys who were just making these <laughs> down and dirty, you know, like paperclip budget films. That's another really important part of why these films proliferated in the ways that they did. Because while the black audience was proven to be really important, um, there was not a sensibility that that meant, okay, then we're going to like throw a lot of resources behind these films. It was really just about like knocking them out. And Melvin Van Peebles' film, Sweet Sweetbacks Badass Song mm-hmm. from 1971. I couldn't have done it, so well done. Five S's oh. and <laughs> badass. Uh, i written it on many N- syllabi. N- normal spelling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was made very cheaply, independently. He made it actually with a lot of the funds that he got from a successful film that he had made called Watermelon Man. Uh, but he wanted to do something that was not co-opted by, dictated by, white Hollywood. The film made a tremendous amount of money at the box office. He basically four-walled it, took it from Black community to Black community, and the response was overwhelming. You keep the faith in me? Are you my man? You're my favorite man. Some people were just so thrilled, especially young Black audiences, young Black male audiences, really felt like they were seeing something that mirrored in some way (laughs) the, the worlds they lived in. But you don't have to, like, think too hard to see that they're also using Black music and fashion and dance and and language in ways that could also be counterproductive to a Black liberation struggle.
2: After the break, more from my conversation with Jacqueline Stewart.
1: I really see her in a Black feminist tradition because what Black women experience the whole race experiences.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: What were the reaction of some black leaders to these films?
1: Yeah, well, there were black leaders who were more on the militant side of things like the Black Panther Party and the Black Panther Party actually championed Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and talked about how it was presenting this image of an empowered Black man and a supportive Black community. You know, the opening credits for Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song actually lists starring the Black community. (laughs) It's just remarkable the way that then peoples relied on the Black community to support the production of the film in various neighborhoods and then to show up for it. So I imagine um, that got a
2: big... Response in theaters. Yes. Huge. I
1: yeah. mean, it just yeah. counteracts every way that the Black community had been treated by the film industry up to that point. So, you know, there were a number of Black militants, not all, but some, who saw the value in Sweet Sweetback, even if they had critiques of some of the other films. But sure, Black middle class, middle-aged <laughs> leaders were not fans of what was happening in these films.
2: Is genuinely complicated how you're supposed to think about this, right? It is.
1: I think so, yeah. When you're looking at black communities being decimated by drugs, and then you have Superfly, yeah. a character who, you know, who's the hero, who was a cocaine dealer, and dressing in a way that then literally gets emulated on the streets of many black communities. Superfly. Yeah. It's not unlike the debates about hip-hop, right? Like, the the idea that this kind of negative media messaging can exacerbate problems.
2: A reminder at that late stage into the 1970s of just how powerful this medium was.
1: I totally agree. And I think that's why Pam Greer became such a, like, heroine and also such a lightning rod for debate. You know, she was on the cover of Ms. Magazine. She'd also been like a centerfold in Players magazine, <laughs> black uh, porn magazine. So to think about how the movies can then set up certain people for totally contradictory readings, too.
2: But Pam was different, right? I mean, because she was certainly the first woman to break through as a star in oh my these gosh. movies.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes people would characterize her as just a woman version of Shaft and Superfly, I and mean, I guess in some ways that's happening in terms of the revenge plots
2: but even if that's true that's incredibly significant
1: it's incredibly significant yes the i would say that the the physicality of the roles is important in terms of fighting and in terms of sexual expression and then there are all these ways that i really see her in a black feminist tradition because one of the lessons of the you know black feminists of the the late 19th century is that what black women experience the whole race experiences. So you have these moments in Pam Grier's films. I guess Foxy Brown is the best example, where she is uh, she's raped by these Southern good old boys. So it ties her right back to a slavery moment in that way. She has drugs, you know, like put into her body by these kind of torturers, which is kind of symbolic of the ways that white people have injected black communities with drugs. She's totally disillusioned by the ways that the criminal justice system, you know, works or doesn't work for Black people. And so there there are ways that her films allow the entire Black community to see something of their experience in a way that Shaft and Superfly really can't because they're coming from a male perspective.
2: And even though Shaft and Superfly, it was a big deal to see a, a black hero like that. We had seen male heroes like that.
1: Absolutely. We really
2: hadn't seen women, black or white, as the kind of hero that Pam played.
1: Totally true. Yes. And the way that then seeing her do all this stuff, <laughs> she does a lot of things, including flying planes. And, right. She know. just turns out she can
2: she can buy a little plane. right. right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Her shooting abilities also very impressive in these films. Seeing her do all these things, I think it just gave a wider spectrum of Black people and probably larger groups of people of color ways to imagine, fantasize about their empowerment. Go on, shoot! I don't want to live anymore! Death is too easy for you, bitch. I want you to suffer. What is her acting style? It really, like, runs the spectrum. There are these moments where she is so earnest and she's uh, articulating the way that her character is feeling. There's a moment in Foxy Brown when she meets up with the committee. It's the group of Black activists, and she's going to convince them to join her in this vengeance quest or justice quest. But she's telling them that, you know, we have to do something to stop these people from exploiting our people. What is it you really want? Justice. For whom? Your brother? Why not? It could be your brother, too. Or your sister. There's this real innocence, but also passion that she brings. And I want justice for all the other people. It has this kind of, like, rawness to it. So that a few big shots can climb up on their backs.
0: Sister, I think what you're asking for is revenge.
1: You just take care of the justice, and I'll handle the revenge myself. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like to be in theaters to see her acting in that way because it's not, you know, it's not method acting. I don't think I would describe it as that. It's not melodramatic. I think it just has this kind of like rawness to it that was probably very relatable to people. And then there are other moments when she's just really funny, when she's laughing or she, it seems to me that she's recognizing like the absurdity of some of the situations that she's performing in. Now, I don't do no leather work, man. No whips, ropes, chains, or none of those fetish freaks. Just plain sex.
2: Donald Bogle says that one of her gifts is how instinctive she is when she listens, which mostly is conveyed uh, through her eyes.
1: Mm, That's lovely. Yeah. I think the, the quiet moments, I think, are the ones that I really do appreciate the most with her because it seems like those are moments when... She really wants us to recognize the character she's playing as like thinking, feeling characters. So sure, there are these bombastic moments and all of that. But then there are others where she just is feeling love for her man or where she's just appreciating some, you know, scene that's happening on the streets. I love those moments. Those are moments that actually remind me of a whole range of Black independent films that were trying to find those quiet spaces
2: so, uh, the movie Original Gangstas.
1: Yes. Um,
2: I always feel weird when I say the word gangstas. 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 gangstas the Tell me about the film Original Gangstas. <laughs> <laughs> Just, come on. Do uh, uh, you remember? Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, you have to work on that. Yeah,
2: yeah. All right, let me try one more. To, um, uh, the film Original Gangstas.
1: Yeah, there we mm, go.
2: Better. Say it faster. Uh, Where did you see it?
1: Oh, I saw it at the Hyde Park Theater in Chicago. That's my neighborhood theater. And uh, was so excited to see it. It's out with my mom, who is a huge Fred Williamson fan. And the plot is about sort of what is happening to Black communities, where they're being, again, infused with drugs, that young Black people are engaged in activities that are destroying the community. And so you have these original gangsters that need to come in and remind folks in their original badass ways, Jim Brown... Richard Roundtree and, of course, Pam is there to kind of set that generation straight and to get the community back on track. It's very entertaining. Fred Williamson. Get out of my face, man. Ah! Jim Brown. you give you a hand. Ah! And Pam Greer. Oh. All right, all oh, you want, okay? Oh, I
2: heard that before.
1: Original Gangsters.
2: More for my conversation with Jacqueline Stewart after the break.
1: There's a long history in which she was, you know, just sort of breaking all of these boundaries.
2: It's been 25 years since Jackie Brown hit theaters. Any recall, as you're probably at the very early stages of your career, of your first reactions to learning that Pam had a... Mm big role in a movie from an important director.
1: Yeah, I was thrilled, thrilled for her that she would get that kind of platform that she so richly deserves. I loved the title (laughs) because it echoes my name. So, (laughs) uh, again, just so rare for a Black woman to have that kind of leading role. Just absolutely thrilling. I had concerns, too, because I wondered how— Quentin Tarantino would pick up on the sensibilities of black exploitation films. What I appreciate most about those films is the way that they, even in really egregious and sometimes, like, titillating ways, they still have this connection to the Black militancy of the time. And so I wondered, okay, this is a film that's going to have some violence in it. (laughs) So how is this going to come across? Is it going to be presented in a way that really can, like, authentically reflect the kinds of uh, pent-up frustrations of Black folks, you know. And and it, it doesn't present violence in the same ways that Black exploitation films do. It doesn't have that same kind of, you know, vengeance against the man plot stuff. It's more about her ability to strategize and her capacity for kind of, like, navigating multiple worlds. And also about a kind of vulnerability, as the film like goes into again and again, that comes with aging, wondering, like, what are my chances going to be at this point in my life? I can't start over again is one of the things that Jackie Brown says. And so she's really trying to like squeeze everything she can out of this moment when she still looks at a certain way, when she can still navigate the world in a certain way. And I think that in that way, the film is layering in a whole different set of questions. Even though she's still something to be looked at, we can also get much deeper sense of how she looks at the world. So there's that great moment when she catches herself in the mirror, in the dressing room. It's really remarkable because there it's like Jackie Brown's looking at herself, but it's also Pam Greer's looking at herself. And that's really, really important. Melanie? Jackie? Hey, girl, what's up? I put a cherry on top. Booyah! What the fuck did Ordell ever do for us, huh? Thanks.
2: How did Jackie Brown change the cultural conversation about Pam Gur?
1: I think it elevated people's sense of her acting ability, no question. I think it also came at a moment when, uh, sure, there's action in the film, but it was not just a bunch of overwrought, set pieces designed to show us, oh, now this is how she's going to beat these people up, and then this is how she's going to beat these people up. Instead, as a a two-and-a-half-hour film.
2: (laughs) With a lot of talking.
1: Yeah, with a lot of talking. We get to see her as a thinking, planning, self-directed person, and someone who is, you know, not only kind of stunning people with her looks— but also someone who has to, like, navigate the world in more realistic ways. So I think that it was a a revelation to a lot of people about what she was capable of doing as an actor.
2: Is it putting too much on her, too much on the film, to say that Pam and Jackie Brown helped change the landscape for black actresses?
1: Oh, I'm sure that's true, even just from, like, a business perspective. Like, you can make a movie called Jackie Brown, starring Pam Greer, and it can do well, like, you still have to prove basic things like that, that any movies that center Black people, Black women, are bankable. It's still a thing, right? I mean, it was still the thought that movies with Black casts can't do well overseas. It just People won't go to see that. Black Panther had to prove that wrong, and that just happened a few years ago. So absolutely, it did not set off like, okay, and now there's going to be Jackie Brown 2, 3, and 4. But I think um, a film like Set It Off, by F. Gary Gray, about four young Black women who become bank robbers. I think even people who might have had some issue with the film, Black women, like emerging filmmakers, were surely inspired by the possibilities of this film. And then just to go back to the stylistic thing, because it's always fascinating to me, You know, there are all these ways that representing Black people has just been really in the history of cinema, earlier history has just been really flat and unimaginative and, you know, great care not taken to light black skin in the right ways, or to think about, like, how do we shoot something with white people and black people in the same frame? Many black independent filmmakers have been working on that, but I think Jackie Brown was an instance where, a mainstream instance in which those kinds of questions were taken seriously.
2: I hope that the podcast and the the interest that the Town seems to be having and and maybe telling her story in a series. Mm -hmm. You know, and you see, you know, Carrie Washington dress up like Pam Mm -hmm. on her Twitter account that, you know, that we're on the cusp of Pam getting the recognition that Pam ought to have had for the much of the last 50 years.
1: I certainly hope so. Yeah, she deserves that. I think it's important to take the whole of it. To, to look at all the things that she's done, it's not going to be about like picking and choosing, but instead recognizing that there's a long history in which she was, you know, just sort of breaking all of these boundaries. And uh, I think that there are so many valuable lessons that she has for contemporary artists and um, and for you know young women as a whole. So I hope that happens for her too. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thank you, Ben.
2: If you're enjoying the plot thickens, why not leave us a review or tell a friend? Or, better yet, do both.